2020 is going to be remembered for one thing. And it isn't going to be your year off booze. I have never wanted to go to the pub with you, Matt, more than I do right now. Welcome to Wet and Dry, a podcast about male drinking culture, sobriety, midlife crisis, pubs and friendship. I'm Matt and I'm wet. And I'm Jeff and I am sort of dry. But I will come back to that later, I promise. That's a cliffhanger at the start of the show. I know. that. Living heck. It's my best Chris Tarrant will be back after the ads, I think, which is topical at the topical, moment. Topical, topical, <laughs> very topical. Wow. So um, I'm not going to go into it immediately, but I suppose how is your lockdown going, Jeffrey? How is it going? So my neighbours don't know that I'm doing this, really. I don't know them that well. So all they saw yesterday was a man in an Adnams brewery truck pull up outside, load four <laughs> crates of beer onto a trolley and wheel them up to my front door. Hold on, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Since I last spoke to you for the last podcast, have you gone from being totally sober to this thing's broken you and now you're smashing so much beer down that the brewery has got a direct link into you. What's going on, Jeff? That would be a way to announce it, I think. No, so a friend of ours, I think he may have had a mention before on this podcast, <laughs> Jules, he sent me a link to the Adnams website and their many different alcohol-free options. You know, they all looked worthy of a try. One of them is the ghost ship that we drank originally when we did our planning meetings oh that was the one in the rose and crown which was on tap yes, that i yeah. said was was doesn't that seem like a long time ago in a different world in a different place it does. years ago when pubs were open well we've gone from drinking that sat around a table in the pub to me just having it ordered secretly and it arriving in boxes so i've ordered a load of that uh, and then another couple of adnams Minimum delivery for free delivery was about 80 quid's worth of non-alcoholic beers. That's a lot of non-alcoholic beer to get through. It is. Especially if it's rubbish. It is, but I am drinking more and more <laughs> and drinking it earlier and earlier because there's a point where you just go, it's a soft drink. So this is fine to have two of these at lunchtime and then another one at three in the afternoon and then two on a Zoom call at six o'clock in the evening and suddenly you've had seven beers and you're absolutely still fine. Do you know what the issue with that is? If you go back to drinking normally, you're going to be in this habit of drinking beers throughout the day. You're going to turn into a massive lush. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the new norm for me is to have a few beers at lunchtime every day without fail and I've got 80 quids worth of these to get through so literally there's no room in our kitchen uh, because you know we're doing sort of fewer shops and buying more every time we do so without a word of a lie there's a crate of beer underneath the bench next to our dining table there's two boxes of it just in the middle of the kitchen and there's another box of beer in the bathroom because it was the only other place we had to store it. I do like the way you're calling it boxes of beer. It's not really, Jeff, it's not really boxes of beer. Can I just point that out? It's non-alcoholic stuff. It's basically water. You've got flavoured water in your house, so don't call it beer. But it looks so convincing. <laughs> it does look good. So apart from that, how's the lockdown? Any, any problems, any issues? I feel like we have to address it each time. I've got one issue that I'd like to bring up in a minute. Why wait, Matt? Do it now. How are you, and this is going to sound bad at the start, how are you with the clapping for people? I'm going to start, better be quick and say this. I'm great with the clapping for the NHS workers and the key workers. I love it. Out every Thursday, it's become a bit of a thing in our road where everyone can see each other. We get banging the things. I'm all over that. Love it. Up for the workers. Loving the workers. If you can see me, you can see that I am pumping my fist in the air now. However, what I've noticed is it's kind of spreading a little bit, yeah? Now, remember, we're British. We don't do displays of affection. I mean, there was clap for Boris, and I could kind of get that if we were clapping for all the ill people. I'm up for clapping for all the ill people, not just one. Then someone said, we're going to sing happy birthday all together for the Queen. I mean, I'm not sure she'd want that, but I'm still there. Then I saw the other day on Twitter... Someone put down, we should have a clap on Sunday for the kids. They should be clapping for me. I'm not clapping for them. 
All I do is cook them food, clean up their mess, ask them what they want. I'm not clapping for the kids. Let's stop that now. Are you all right? Anyway, that's my view. Um, you okay, hon? <laughs> so um, we're recording this. We've already recorded our guest today, haven't we? We have. And, you know, it's again, I'm so busy at the moment. We recorded with Bruce, who's our guest, last week. And we actually haven't had the chance to speak since then. So it's weird because when we recorded with Bruce, that was a big moment for you because that was the first drink you'd had at home since the lockdown. It was the first drink I'd had since the lockdown. So I, I had been dry for about three weeks. And Bruce, who is, I mean, should I tell people who Bruce is now? Yeah, well, he's a friend of yours, which is sort of how we've got him. And he, but he's an incredible guest. Yeah, Bruce is one of my best friends in all the world. I've known him for, for 20 odd years. He used to run Twitter in Europe and Asia. He is also the presenter of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast, which has been the number one Apple work podcast. He also has a best-selling book called The Joy of Work, with a very good thing at the back thanking me if people want to go and look at the acknowledgements. So Bruce is coming on, and I thought, you know what? I haven't had a drink. I'm going to have the drink throughout our podcast, it kind of felt like going to the pub. And I figured as I got drunker, you would do the talking with him because it was kind of like drinking in work and you could all do the clever stuff. I did get quite hammered. And I'll tell you what, the next day I got up early to walk the dog and I walked out and my muscles were aching. My head had gone. I'm thinking, I've got it. Oh, my God, I've got it. It wasn't until about... 25 minutes later, maybe an hour later, I realised, no, I hadn't got the coronavirus. I had a really bad hangover. I'd just forgotten what it was like. But I was literally like, oh, my God, what's happened? What's happened? <laughs> I don't know if people will be able to hear it, but you hadn't had that much to drink. Well, I think you drank most of a bottle of wine. I'd, I'd had about a bottle of red and two or three bottles of beer, two bottles of beer, and the best part of a bottle of red. So not loads for me normally, but I was out of practice. At the moment, as we're recording this, I haven't yet edited the interview, but two things I definitely remember. One, Bruce was trying to make a really well-spoken, <laughs> well-thought-through argument as to why I was doing the wrong thing. You were just getting closer and closer to the camera and making faces at us, which is which is not a Matt I've seen in other podcasts. And I know he's a friend of yours, but still. And then the other point, we were again mid discussion and you just got up and left because you needed to look. <laughs> it is funny. But I don't remember. And this shows you we once talked about tolerance, didn't we, about drinking and how if you decide to come back to drinking, how your tolerance is going to be and, and it is going to be poor. I'd only been off booze for, for three weeks. I don't remember much about the last kind of 15 minutes of the podcast. I know I was on it. You've just reminded me I got up and went to the loo. So I must have been gone for quite a while. <laughs> but, but it just shows that, I mean, I'm looking forward to the first night out I have when this Weird year is over with you and you're getting back drinking again. The other thing we need to talk about that's happened since we did the Bruce interview is we gave online drinks a go. Yeah, that was odd. You mentioned it to me that you'd seen, uh, I think it's Camera that we had on the podcast a few weeks ago. They launched their own online drinking establishment. Obviously, there's no pubs at the moment. Great name, The Red On Lion. I mean, it's worth it for the name alone. Yeah, all the best ideas are name first and then let's do something with it. So they launched that. We decided to get some of our friends, some people we would normally go to the pub with. And I said, well, hey, let's record the call because we're always hilarious when we're at the pub. There'll be loads of great content from us doing an online <laughs> Zoom call. How much? I don't know about you, but it was 20 minutes of just the most awkward pub chat it was really weird it's not the way that conversations work in a pub you don't speak one at a time there's little breakaway groups or you know someone will hold court for a bit and then so it, it just isn't it wasn't right Matt you're so right you know what I was quite excited to give it a go and like I say it was great to see our mates because I haven't seen a lot of them 
but you've hit the nail on the head. It is not how pub conversations work. It's how meetings at work go ahead because one person speaks, everyone listens, and quite often it's one person who will be replying to that point because it's their point of expertise. The whole point of being in a pub is like you say, people are throwing stuff in, the gags are coming from over there, someone's gone off over there, someone's coming with something else. What was happening was someone was talking, then you were kind of waiting to see who responded. And it was kind of like a stilted version of a conversation. Also, what it's made me appreciate how pub conversations work. So someone would arrive on a Zoom call and everybody would be forced to listen to the how's your lockdown going? How are the family? How are the kids? What you've been up to? Have you got any loo roll left? And we'd all have to listen to it. And what it's made me appreciate is that when you're in a pub, I think obviously this isn't a written rule, Somebody takes that for the team. When someone new arrives, <laughs> one person will take them to the side and do that catch up one on one so that everybody else can carry on the conversation that they're already having. And then once they've got that how you are out of the system, they're allowed to integrate into the existing conversation. And all of these things happen naturally in a pub. It is the way of the pub. And it's really hard to recreate on a, a Zoom call. You're absolutely right about work calls because I've just come before this zoom call i've just done one with work and that was our end of the week work drinks and they work because when you do go out for a drink with work colleagues there is still a sense of formality to it and and you do have certain topics that really lend themselves to going around the table we're doing a lot of what's everybody watched on netflix this week kind of chat and that lends itself to going around and everybody suggests something and you know what are you doing at the weekend again you go around the table it's just not how pub conversations work i think the other point that you kind of touched on earlier is you never in a pub in a group all have the same conversation. It never, ever happens. If you're around a table, if there's more than three people, you split off into little segments and people are talking about something else, you're catching up on something else. Everyone doesn't sit around in, and have one conversation unless you've got like the funniest. Maybe if I was leading the conversation, people would all listen to me because I am that funny. Top five in London, I think we did on the first podcast. Let's go back there. If you haven't listened, go back, listen to the first one. But normally that doesn't happen. You peel off. People are at different stages of drunkenness. People are, uh, have different relationships with different people. They talk about different things with different people. You can't do that on Zoom. What I'm basically saying is Zoom's crap for pub conversations. Doesn't work. The other problem with our Zoom call was we'd all decided after 20 minutes that it wasn't very good and we all left. And then people were texting me for the next hour going, where are you lot? I've just tried to log in and it says there's no one in there. It's like, well, yeah, we started at seven <laughs> and we were finished by 20 past. It does make you appreciate just how good a pub is for this sort of thing. It's the perfect environment for that sort of, especially among men, and we've talked about this before, because for the way our friendships work, it works so well for that kind of in and out, moving around, and you can't replicate it online. You know, if this lockdown lasts forever, I mean, I'll come teetotal. We can do dry and dry, although we are coming back to that, I believe. Oh, before we move on, I should just say, I did record that Zoom call and I'm not going to play any of it. There is absolutely nothing. I mean, our friends are lovely people, but I think if any of them were here, they would go, no, there's no award-winning podcast material. Talking of award-winning podcasts... Oh, gosh, here we go again. Have you won another one? Not not yet. Have you won another podcast? Uh, one of the podcasts that I've made is now nominated <laughs> for a New York Radio Award. So, And was that with David Baddiel? Yeah, David Baddiel, uh, sleeping with David Baddiel. If we're going to drop some names. Yeah, so that one's nominated for a New York Radio Award, which... I think makes this the only one I'm working on which hasn't been nominated for anything yet. And it's still very early in the awards season. It isn't eligible for a lot of this year's awards. So we're looking at a year from now anyway, but I, I just thought I'd mention it. So I think it's about time that we got our guest on. And you've already, uh, I think we've said everything apart from uh, his actual name. It's Bruce Daisley. Bruce Daisley. We were similarly, we were catching up last week and there was a moment when, because... You know, it's not 
again, it's just not like meeting people in real life. You're chatting away and then someone else pops up on your screen and they're immediately in the middle of the conversation. So there was just a moment last week where we were chatting away and suddenly Bruce arrived. Oh, Bruce is here now. How are you? I was watching the magic being made. <laughs> I thought I'm going to turn up while they're still prepping. <laughs> no, it's good. He's in. He's coming already. He's coming. How are you, Bruce? Thank you. And now I've had my two pina Hello, Jeff. Hi, how you doing? I've had my two pina coladas and now I'm going on to sparkling wine. Oh, good. I'm on red. I'm on red, Bruce, already. I've got a whole bottle here. I've got what feels like a prop. <laughs> Bruce, you can help with this one. So I was saying to Jeff, he's not coming up with good ideas now because he's not going to the pub. I saw a story in the Times, yeah? This was the headline. Pub chat revved up Mercedes F1 team to create coronavirus breathing aid. So basically, on the evening of March the 17th, six days before we went into lockdown, an NHS doctor, two engineers, met for a pint and came, up with, story, yeah. and came up with an idea to do these new breathing aids. I think that's great. What jumped out to me that it was the pub that pushed them forward. And they were clearly going there for a drink. Watson and Crick, they came up with some of their uh, innovation for DNA in the pub. I think you'll find, Bruce, it was the Eagle Pub in Cambridge. I have it on here. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't set that up. Bruce, this is the first time he's ever done any research for this podcast. He's only showing off because you're on OK, it. then, can I ask you two some questions? What did they come up with in the Freemason's Arms in Covent Garden? Any idea? I don't know. There's standard units of measurement are in Covent Garden. I'm going for that. It's football rules. The FA coded the football rules there. There's no way they did that in the pub. It says on my research they did it in the pub, so shut up. VAR is a pub invention. Uh, everything else was done in a committee room. OK, what did they do in the Dove in Hammersmith, which is, incidentally, the smallest pub in London? They wrote words to which classical song in there? What you're fundamentally forgetting is that no one likes guessing games. <laughs> OK, all right then. Rule Britannia was written in there. The Georgian Dragon in the Arm, they came up with the first public railway. And in the old coach house, this didn't go as well, Guy Fawkes came up with his idea to blow up Parliament. So there you go. If you don't go to the pub and drink, you don't come up with good ideas. That was what I was saying. What you've proved is that six ideas out of all ideas ever were invented in a pub. Well, it's not I'm, I'm very sceptical of this. I used to live in York, and uh, a lot of pubs in York... York is one of the many cities in the United Kingdom that claims to have more pubs per member of population than the... The, the rest of the country. And pubs would have these lavish and, and ostentatious claims of why their pub was different. And I just don't believe any of them. I've been in at least four smallest pubs in the world. I've been in four or five oldest pubs in the world. I just don't believe any of it. What's the best idea you ever came up with in the pub? I know yours, Jeff. It's this podcast. What's yours, Bruce? I had a party for the Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> in 1997, way before Eurovision was kitsch call. And uh, it's, I've only had two parties in my life, and that idea was hatched in a pub. And you know what? It's one of the best parties. I mean... The person you did that with was pretty special too, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I did it with a guy called Keith Arrowsmith. And, uh, <laughs> that was me and you. And we won it. We won it that year. Love Shine a Light, Katrina and the Waves, which was the first dance at my wedding. It was a magical period in British history because Labour won the election on the Thursday, well, Friday morning, really. And then it was like this extraordinarily beautiful weekend. It was a long weekend. And then... It was May Day on the on the Monday, and then we won the Eurovision on the Saturday. It's like, I don't think British history has ever been better than that. It's got to be better than this May, that's for sure. Great days. So, Bruce, we haven't introduced you yet. Uh, I feel like we should at least say hello. I've already mentioned earlier in the podcast that you are a good friend of Matt's, but I have wanted to get you on for a while because uh, of this, which is my... I was going to say, is it signed... Is this my unsigned copy? This is my unsigned copy of the book. I've got 14 of them downstairs. Bought them all to get him out. 14 of them. But uh, I've wanted to have you on specifically this podcast for a while because Amazing. there's some really interesting uh, stuff in here uh, actually around drinking. 
and sort of after work drinks and drinking culture. But equally, I know you're a friend of Matt's, so I know you must be quite a big drinker yourself. Uh, not especially a, a big drinker. Gosh, that sounds like a terrible. And here he is, the big drinker, friend of Matt's. Um, no, not especially. <laughs> but um, so I wrote a book about work, and I, and I guess the the thing about drinking in there. So let me start with that. Is that we often associate great moments and and good teams that we've been in from moments of drinking in the pub, and and it's an unfortunate way that we categorise memories because. The danger of, of cultures built in the pub is that they become sort of cliqueish and they become selective. And I chatted to someone last year and they said that a, a member of their staff had chosen not to go to the pub and had felt ex- excluded from their cabal of management discussions. And what you miss when you go to the pub is you often miss the fact that half of the team aren't there. And it might be someone who's got care responsibilities or someone who just doesn't want to spend most of their disposable income drinking with colleagues. And so what you end up with, these cultures that might feel cohesive to the people who go and and participate, but actually are incredibly estranging. And so, you know, the really interesting thing is trying to capture some of the magic of what the pub sometimes creates, which is when we're together talking actively engage with each other it does energize us even introverts amongst us get energized by that degree of conversation and trying to capture some of that is incredibly helpful the alcohol and the out of hours part probably are probably quite toxic actually for most cultures that's not to say that you shouldn't go and have a drink with colleagues but you shouldn't make that the basis of your work culture because you end up half the team aren't there but i have a feeling that one of the reasons you were interested in the culture of work was we worked together uh, for Capital Radio, a company Capital Radio owned, which had a very good culture, a very fun culture. And it was always, can we replicate that? Can we do it again? That culture was based a lot on drinking, of young people drinking. If you didn't drink, you probably, rightly or wrongly, wouldn't have experienced that culture as much if Jeff had turned up at that stage, not drinking for a year, would he have the same feeling of the culture that we have? You know, that a lot of our friends are still from that time. How would you deal with that? So I think you, uh, you raise uh, a really interesting point. So I guess, you know, to, to give context, the, one of the reasons why I was so fascinated with workplace culture is because we worked in a place that was a sort of forgotten offshoot of Capital Radio is probably a better way to describe it. We were sort of a neglected experiment and it was beleaguered. You know, it required a lot of resilience from people. It was run on a computer system that used to lose everything on it routinely. We were described as faulty towers by an outside media commentator. It was sort of, it was chaotic, but there was something resilient about the the group of people there. And I think I was sort of interested in that. And, and look, you, you raised an interesting point. Can you create those cohesive cultures without booze? Yeah, I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain you can, but they're often easy shortcuts. Um, I chatted to a brilliant woman who, uh, who's a real inspiration. She runs, I can't imagine how difficult her life is right now, but she's, um, she's a doctor at the Whittington Hospital and she wanted to get some of the benefits of going to the pub, but she knew that a lot of the medical staff they had don't drink or they don't have money to drink or just you know aren't around to drink after work. And so she introduced some theatre games, actually. So these are the sort of games that comedians might use to warm up before things. And she said, right, OK, we've got this 10 minutes every day for on-the-job training. And what we're going to do, we're going to introduce, when there's no training, so when, you, you know, we're not doing a session on uh, how to apply bandages or how to take a sample, uh, we're just going to do these games. And half the team chose not to do them. But she described vividly to me how the ones who did They'd learn people's names by the weird game that they played. And you, you play the, these improvisation things that you struggle not to laugh at the end of them. And it, for me, like the way she described it, it was like, okay, but that's a clever way to bring some of the magic of the pub without necessarily forcing people to have a drink. I feel like I've worked both ends of the spectrum in my time. So I've worked for 
you know, a, a radio station where I literally had a bar on my desk. Uh, breakfast show producer, so we'd really be finished our work by one. Uh, we, you know, everybody else has still got half a day's work to do, but we'll sit around. And... Where'd you work, Jeff? I've worked everywhere, but that specific one was when I was at Heart. What? I mean, for me, as a kid growing up, that would have been my dream job. When you were doing it, did you feel like you had a dream? Not specifically Heart, but working as the producer on a breakfast show, that would have been my dream job. Oh, it is. There are there are days when you properly pinch yourself. Coming, you know, I've worked with a Spice Girl at breakfast. It doesn't get much more pinch yourself than. Uh, and the best one. Well, I mean, if she was here, I'd tell her Mel C's my favourite. <laughs> but it was. Can I just interrupt on Jeff's breakfast show producing thing, which is interesting that because you know we're all radio background that Bruce has said that it was the reason that I hated Jeff when he first came to school. I was running the football team. I was the radio man, yeah? And I could big my radio credentials up because I worked at Talk Sport and at Capital, but I was never a producer, never that good. And then I remember Jeff turning up to football practice and one of the other dads saying, he's a producer for the Heart Breakfast Show. I was going, no, no, he's not. No, he's not. Then it turned out he was. And I absolutely hated you because you'd taken away all my kudos by top trumping what you did in radio. But now look at us. And that's a good thing to think. Yeah, you've made peace with the fact that I've got a better job than you. So, uh, so at the other end of the scale, I worked with Gap, who are a big, you know, San Francisco based, and you'll know all about that, clean cut American company. So drinking is an absolute no at any time as part of their work culture during lunch, after work or any sort of official business, you can't order a drink. And that was actually the first sort of social media job I did after I left Heart. So I went from having a bar on my desk to not being able to have a drink with work colleagues. And that was a probably one of the reasons I didn't stay there for that long was that actually the work culture and me just were not cut out for each other. The, the question I always have about that, and I guess it goes to the heart of your challenge this year, Jeff, is that quite often you when you see those things, I remember I went to chat to someone recently and they were telling me about people who work at Oracle, the, the big sort of computer software engineering uh, sort of infrastructure firm. And Oracle have got a rule that you can't make Facebook friends with colleagues. Why? Because you backward engineer it. And, and it's because if someone says something about someone's home life situation, sexuality, whatever, the company might be liable for it. So what they do is they just risk mitigate. And it's exactly the same. That If you're in a work culture that is first and foremost, the people are perceiving you as risks to be mitigated. They're perceiving you as we want to sand all the rough edges off these people because we just want them to do a specific job. Then inevitably, what you, you're not in a human-focused environment, are you? You're not in something that actually cares about your experience. It's quite instructive. The critical thing I think there is that, you know, by creating rules, we actually we remove some of the magic of what of what human beings are able to engage with the quirkiness the weirdness but that's one of the challenges i've got with your thing this year is look you know we're free people and albeit that there might be this protestant ethic that i am going to set this onerous task for myself go on son and i'm going to demonstrate that i am capable of this abstemious life bereft devoid of pleasure and somehow have accomplished something and the question i would have is is life ever truly enhanced by rules like that you know, right now we're in a very singular situation and what a, what a proud moment of humanity it would be for you to say, to hell with these rules, I'm going to treat this like I'm on a cruise ship. And the only way to operate on a cruise ship is a fruit-based drink to start the day and then transition to a session-based drink. for the. And I just wonder if that new attitude might be the thing that helps you prevail through these singular... People are going to say, like the Spanish flu of 1918, people are going to say, wow, what was it like? And you're going to say, yeah, I was on a year off booze, so I just watched a lot of Netflix. And I just wonder if... I just wonder if, as we have just like a, such a finite amount of our glory years, I just wonder if you shackled yourself with something that unfortunately, as human beings, 
we optimize, we believe that consistency is a really good characteristic. Actually, when people are consistent, even if they're wrong, we tend to value them more than if they're inconsistent, but often right. And I wonder if you might be erring on the side of wanting to be consistent because it's such a well-regarded characteristic, rather than to say, to hell with this, ship me in some virgin wines and I'm going to go through the catalogue. Can I just say that during that monologue, I've done three glasses of red. I'm absolutely battered now. Jeff, answer that one. Wow. Uh... <laughs> I don't think you're wrong uh, with any part of that, if I'm perfectly honest. Jeff, don't let him bully you. Go back at him. I'm merely asking a question. Uh, just one. I think you're right. I have the sort of personality where I want to know something for sure. And one of the things I want to know is if I'm drinking too much. And the way for me to measure that was to see if I could stop. And if I didn't find this challenge difficult, then that in itself told me something. And I'm 90 days in and I haven't had any real problems with it. If anything, I've quite enjoyed the break from drinking. There is a question, you're right, about the next 275 days, because I, there's a sense of I might have proved everything I can prove from this so far. Mm. The measurement of time I chose at the start of this was a fairly arbitrary one in a year. It could have been 100 days, could have been six months. I don't think that would have made much difference. Whether the current situation should change my mindset or not is one I definitely am struggling with at the moment because having set out to do it for a period of time if you then stop because you know we're in the middle of a pandemic and life at the moment is shit then does that prove that I could stop or does it prove that actually I couldn't? I was really taken with something that I saw. Um, there's a guy who runs a publishing firm called Unbound. You've probably seen them. They do like those Kickstarter for books. He wrote a blog post a few months ago saying he wanted to change his operating system for drinking. Really interesting idea because I've always had an operating system for drinking. And my operating system, because I've got addiction in my family, I've got people who, when you've witnessed other people who are addicts, it forces you to sort of try and reconcile patterns of behavior yourself. And so I've always had a heuristic, which is three dry days a, a week. Very simple. In fact, my friend operates the same little heuristic. His is three dry days a week, but he counts it in hours. So he does 72 hours. He drinks Sunday lunchtime and Wednesday evening. So actually, he only has two calendar days off drink, but he has a nice little glass of wine on his Sunday lunch and then starts again Wednesday evening. But I've always had an operating system. And this guy, the guy, Dan Kiernan from, from Unbound, he said he was changing his operating system for drinking, that the default setting was in any situation he wouldn't drink. And so, you know, he would go and meet a mate in a pub, but he wouldn't be drinking. And unless they had a beer he particularly liked or unless it was, you know, something big had happened. And so he's just, his little heuristic was, oh, I'll go out and I'm not drinking tonight. And then when he drank, it felt like an occasion. Whereas I think Brits have just got this default. If you're going out, you're drinking. Bruce, can I ask you a question on that? Because when you were at Twitter and we said earlier what you did at Twitter, I remember a conversation with you when you said one of the people from Germany or somewhere else said to you, every time it's a social, it's about getting drunk. And that didn't really resonate with the European teams. So do you think it is, especially in a work culture, very much the British way, every night out we have every social bonding format for a company, the Christmas party, the someone leaving, it's always in the pub. It's based around the pub. Is that not the case in even European cultures or, you know, further afield? Absolutely. And it's these little norms that actually we, we don't notice. I went to New York recently. I was doing something in New York and I was astonished by, firstly, all of the business things I was going to, everyone came with their partner, either their husband or their wife. In Britain, that never happens. What I'm at a lunchtime thing and people are there with their partner. Bizarre. That didn't even happen to me and I worked with her. Just like really bizarre, really bizarre little things. But you often don't notice the things that are slightly different. And so exactly that, a colleague said to me, why every time I go out with British people, do they not only have to drink, but do they have to drink 
almost like they're trying to qualify for some medal in it. It's only when you sort of hear those things, you go, gosh, that's absolutely the case. You know, if, if you said I had one drink and went home or had one drink, but I stayed all night, Brits struggle to understand how that works. Couldn't do it. I couldn't do that. People say, oh, you know what? Those Italian people, they nurse to drink all night. And like, almost like it's sinful to have one drink and enjoy one drink. You know what? I've sat in pubs with my dad and my brother when they come down and there'll be someone coming in nursing one drink for a long time and we will comment on it in a negative way. It's we like we're make- members of the Chambers of Commerce. We need to get the bar take up. What the hell's going on? Well, Matt will tell you this is true. You know, the level of fascination around what I'm doing with our friends has been absolutely dominating every pub conversation we've had since January. Everybody asks, oh, what does that actually taste like? But tell me this then, Jeff, as a provocation, wouldn't it be harder for you to carry on drinking but half the episodes that you drink? Because at the moment, you've been afforded a narrative here. And this narrative, actually, the, the very fact that it's this simple off switch it's very simple isn't it if someone contacts you any change can do this sorry my rule is i don't do that and like it goes no further you know any change can do this i'm fasting for ramadan okay right okay it seems non-negotiable however yours because it's this non-negotiable thing actually i wonder if it'd be more interesting for me if you said i'm halving the amount i'm drinking but i'm not doing it by this binary thing where i'm, I'm afforded you know this extended lent period where i'm not drinking but rather I'm going to just go out and sometimes I drink and sometimes I don't drink because I'm more conscious. Hold on. Before you answer this, do you know what I feel like at the moment? I feel like I've arranged a sexy threesome and we've got into bed and I've been told to go and stay in the toilet until it's over. That's how I feel. But answer the question. <laughs> okay. Turning it off is, you're right, the easy bit. And you're completely right to identify that I can hide behind the fact that I'm doing this. The interesting thing for me will be how I turn it back on. And pretty early in this process, I think I've decided that full-time sobriety is not me 2.0. And I will turn it back on, but I don't know how. Mm. Is that I will alternate alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks? Is that I will have a I only drink on weekends rule? Will I adopt a, I can go out, but I don't drink? Um, I don't know which of those is the lifestyle I want after this. I know, having done it so far, that the lifestyle I want at the end of this isn't the one I had. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I fortunately ended up with um, two tickets for Wimbledon this year. I was going to go to Wimbledon. Me and Matthew were going to go to Wimbledon. I'm obsessed with Wimbledon, and we were going to men's semi-final I'm beyond ecstatic. Now, I know, truly, if I had not drunk that day, I would have had a wonderful day. I would have been in rapture. We would have had so much fun. I know the moment that me and Matt there, we would have got a quick, probably lager to start and would have been taken in double wines. In fact, we saw some tennis at the O2 and we drank disgusting quantities of alcohol. And can I also point out, we went to Queen's together and ended up sitting in a graveyard drinking cans from the local, <laughs> from, 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 from a, yeah, just round the corner, shop round the corner. So I share your concern that, you know, like sometimes the way we bring alcohol into things actually doesn't enhance them, but we seem sort of trapped in this flight plan where we can't necessarily easy break out of it. I share your feelings on that. You should read that Dan Kiernan post, that um, renegotiating your operating system for drinking. Because having a system seems to be a good way. I mean, I'm the guy who criticised rules before, but having a system seems to be a good way (laughs) to try and keep some order to it. Which is why I don't, until today, drink at home. That's my system. You know, I don't drink when I'm in the house because at the height of the media time when we were working, whenever we were out, it was a drink. So I had to have some rules to stop me drinking all the time. And now that situation is not as us. I still don't drink at home, actually, until today. Thing is, for me, I get quite a lot of enjoyment out of that at-home drinking. (laughs) I like nice red wine. I tend to only drink that you know, whether it's me and my wife or, you know, a friend over for dinner, 
will drink that. I, I, I actually enjoy the alcoholic drink. It's the thing I miss most about drinking is the really nice single drink. I miss that more than I miss the nights out on the booze. I miss that night more than any perceived I'm having a better time because I'm drinking. And it's certainly the thing I will switch back on first is having a nice drink. So I couldn't not drink at home. You know, I know that the thing that I won't be adopting at the end of this is your model. To the kind of operating system, I, I still don't know what this looks like when I when I come back to drinking. I've got, and perhaps this is the good side of 365 days off, I've got plenty of time to work it out. I'm not doing a short sprint month off drinking, which definitely wouldn't give me enough time to sort that out, to come up with a new model and get into it. I don't see the value of a month off drink. This feels like the sunk cost fallacy. That It feels to me like you've committed to doing a year off. And even though actually everything rationally now is telling you, oh, for goodness sake, you've done 100 days. I mean, like, let's give this guy a round of applause. What an incredible accomplishment. He's done it. He's actually done what he set out to do. But the sunk cost fallacy is the notion that, well, you've invested 100 days in this. It'd be crazy not to keep going for another 265. You're already describing the way that you'll be able to manage this, moderate this, and it's going to be life-enhancing. I, I find it, maybe if you hadn't created a podcast, which is sort of about your affirmation <laughs> of the concept. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's definitely an element of that, I'll be honest. Online quizzes are all the rage at the moment. I don't know. Have you done any, Bruce? I haven't, no. Like the, the nightly Instagram lives with Mo the Comedian or whatever, and we might. <laughs> there is, at the moment, a sense of trying to recreate that office-forced fun on Zoom. You're lucky enough to be on paternity leave, I think, at the moment, Bruce. So you're presumably not doing the five o'clock Zoom drinks with your teammates. I have no teammates, I know, exactly. Exactly. If you were still at work, would you be driving those forced catch-ups with a beer on a Friday? What I will say is that anytime we we feel a human connection with colleagues, we tend to just feel more connected with our jobs. Generally, it's not a surprise if you say to people, when was your favourite job ever? They'll describe times that they laughed a lot and they, they got on with their teammates rather than they wrote brilliant PowerPoint slides. So I think, you know, the relationship that we had with uh, with teammates is often a really important part of our experience of work. Bruce, you have come closer than any other guest to putting me back onto drinking. Uh, so I must applaud you for that. Well, I want to applaud you, Jeff, because you've you've achieved something formidable. You've hit 100 days of dryness in something that, as we've covered during the course of this discussion, will be described in hindsight as a slow-moving trauma. And I think you've achieved 100 days of dryness. I think that you should salute and celebrate this remarkable thing that you've done. And in no way think that it's a bronze medal if you were to leave the podium at this stage. He's still pushing. He's still pushing. <laughs> He's still... I love that. You've got one in the bank. You know you're allowed like a little once a month. Like, Why don't you have a little glass of red wine tonight? The only thing I'll disagree with you, I think, on Bruce, is at the end of this, when I look back at this period of coronavirus, one of my memories of it will be that I didn't drink through it. And no, I think I will always be... Narrative fallacy, that is. <laughs> Narrative fallacy. What you're doing is believing that somehow the story you'll tell will feel nonsense. This is a classic cognitive deception. Whether this gets in or not, one of the memories I have is, because uh, I have high blood pressure, Bruce texting me, if you die... I'll take over from from you on the the wet and dry podcast. I drink at home. That'll be fine. Don't worry about it. That's the one I'll have. Well, Matt, Bruce has come closer in one episode to making me go back to drink than you've come in 10. 
So I'd say it's a definite good shout on there. I presume this was all a ruse for the gin marketing board. That episode, and I think you've mentioned those little gins a couple of times, it was such a beautiful description of a product that I've ended up, I don't even like gin. And yet the way that they described it in that episode, it sounded delicious. Did you buy one? I hate gin. Give it a go, it is delicious. I'm a latecomer to gin. And even I resisted tonic until about two years ago. So I kept going with gin but would only drink it with something really sweet like lemonade and then i gave up sugar for a year so i had to drop the lemonade he loves giving up stuff (laughs) what's next (laughs) laughing fingers i'm not gonna use my fingers for a year i'll be honest (laughs) matt and i've had a conversation about what i might give up next year just to do more podcast episodes (laughs) i'm having my teeth taken out guys bruce thank you very much for coming on thank you for having me on lovely to chat to you both we always finish this with a cheers so can you say Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, guys. So, I mean, look, we could have ended it there, but there is one other thing I need to talk about, and it's partly related to what you've just heard. I can't believe that he did that to you. (laughs) I went away from that interview thinking, do you know what? Bruce said a lot of really intelligent things, and... I think if someone says something intelligent to you, it's your job to think about what they've said. And it made me think about what my long-term plan for this project is and what I want to get out of it. There were two things I came up with as a conclusion directly from speaking to Bruce last week. One is, I think at the end of this, I'm not going to drink alcoholic beer or lager again okay i've got quite used to drinking non-alcoholic beers and lagers i like them as a drink now and i think if i'm going to the pub with you i will probably drink non-alcoholic lager what forever yeah i think so i mean you know look i don't think any of these need to be hard fast rules and again that's something bruce was saying but more often than not i'm going to drink non-alcoholic beer i think that's one of the conclusions i can make now you know, three months into this project. A hundred days done, yeah. But the other thing that we talked about was how much I do miss those one-off special occasion drinks. You know, the glass of wine with the paella in Valencia. How long ago does that seem? And on Sunday, it was Easter day. And we opened a particularly nice bottle of wine and we had a particularly nice, you know, leg of lamb and roast dinner. And I thought about everything Bruce had said and I went, do you know what? I actually want a glass of wine with my Easter dinner. And I know this is something Andy said when we went to speak to him and he was saying, you know, they'd gone off hunting venison and they got this perfect bottle of red wine and he had a sip and realised he didn't want any. Actually, I really enjoyed my glass of red wine. So you've had... A drink of alcohol. Yeah, I had a single glass and not a particularly big glass of a, uh, you know, a delicious wine I bought in 2005 and waited almost 10 years for it to arrive. And we've got a few bottles left and we have them on special <laughs> occasions. And Bloody hell. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, like you, it's a long time since I've had a drink. And even though I only had what is probably half a glass of red wine, my face went like bright red and hot and I definitely had this (laughs) rush of um, alcohol afterwards I had to do some writing in the afternoon I had to give myself an hour off but I thoroughly enjoyed it it hasn't made me want to get back on drinking it was just me enjoying that moment when it comes down to it the main essence of this podcast the central point in it is your journey of not drinking my first question is I understand the reasoning behind it. I understand what you're saying. However, how did it make you feel in terms of you've done 100 days? Yeah. You know, you you could have done 360 days, I have no doubt. Did you feel any kind of, ah, I've, I've, I've given into it or were you just happy with it? It sounds like you were happy and I'm not saying you have to be upset by it, but was there anything that I broke in it? at all no and i thought for quite a long time before i did have it and this whole project is about me taking the year off but it isn't really about the year it's about every year that then follows it and how i look at drinking how i think about it and me having a single glass of red wine on easter sunday 
really didn't change that experiment at all. Other than I think that at this stage, I can rule out absolute sobriety as the end result of this project. Hey! <laughs> okay, and on one more point, which I'm pleased about that, by the way, two other points actually I'd like to make. The first is you text me to tell me, which, you know, I'm glad you did. I don't think I've ever been this invested in someone else, whether they drink or not, in my entire life. My initial thought, which I didn't think this would be, was, no, don't, 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 don't break it, don't break it. From being the person that was like, you big idiot, you've got a drink. I don't know whether it was because of the podcast, because I've been on the journey with you, I've been in the pub with you. I've heard people come and talk to us about it. A bit of me was kind of upset. Then I thought, no, I can't remember much of what Bruce said because I was a bottle in, but I thought it made you sound, I thought it made you more human in the way you're doing it because you've gone through this really easily. Every test you've kind of had, you've done really, really easily. You've not struggled to go on holiday and not drink. You've not struggled to come out to the pub with me and not drink. You haven't struggled through birthday parties or functions and not drink. And people do struggle. And, and you know, even people who don't have a negative relationship with alcohol, they would still struggle with those things. But I think it makes it a bit more real. And how we move on from here, I think that gives a whole new exploration to this podcast about... Maybe not the sobriety, nothing works, but more about responsible drinking or how you deal with alcohol moving forward when it's not a massive issue. And in that way, I, I think it makes it more interesting. Yeah, if you think of this as a spectrum with absolute sobriety at one end and me at the, the way other. I was drinking <laughs> at the other end. Yeah, OK. Um, all I've really done is pull the ends of that spectrum in ever so slightly and ruled the very extremes out. I'm not going to go back to the way I was drinking before and I will drink something in some form at the end of this experiment. Everything else is still to be decided. And, and I like that. It gives us a whole new place to go. One thing from last week that I've learnt is I will never go three weeks again without a drink. It's too long for me. Even if they put us in for another three weeks, I'm getting used to household drinking. I'll find a way to make it feel like I'm in the pub. But it's also reinforced just how much I love the pub and how nothing that's recreated, maybe a dinner party to a certain extent, but nothing can recreate my love of the environment, which is a pub. I love it. Well, on that note, I think that's probably it for this episode, isn't it? Stay off the booze for the weekend, Jeff. Speak soon. <laughs> Cheers, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.